Sorry, you're just going to pick it up here. <laughs> the first three will be lost forever. Yeah. Um, so, the Apostle Paul also said that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is unthinkable that Christians would ever forget Christ's sacrifice. On the contrary, we pro proclaim his death until he returns, not only with our words, but also with the supper. And so the supper is a uh, living picture of the gospel. It is proclamation, not in words, but in action, in deed, and symbolism. Fifth, a return to the events of the dark night, that dark night, helps us see that Jesus was promising benefits to true believers. We, set, we celebrate the supper not only in remembrance of Christ himself, but also in remembrance that Jesus promised his body for us and that his bloody covenant is with us. Jesus gave himself in our place and for our sake, and the supper is designed to keep that glorious fact before your eyes at all times. It is because the supper, supper serves, that's hard to say, supper serves. Say that fast seven times. It is because the supper serves as a seal of the benefits and treasures of the redemption that Paul refers to the wine as the cup of blessing. Sixth, this supper is to be observed for our spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ. We can see from the Gospels that the Lord's Supper was at least in part a ceremonial addition to an existing meal, but it was not a normal meal. It was not intended for bodily nourishment and growth. Paul had to remind the Corinthians of this because they were hurrying to serve themselves so that they would have enough to eat. This is one reason why we need to remember that Jesus took the symbolic cup and used it as an emblem of his own sacrifice after supper. The Lord's Supper is like a good sermon. It's intended as food for the soul. Seventh. We are to celebrate the Lord's Supper for our further engagement in and to all duties which we owe him. And the Westminster Assembly, in saying this, is not drawing on a particular passage in Scripture. However, the gathering is simply noting the gratitude that guilty Christians show in response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In realizing that Jesus not only gave us himself, but also gave us this abiding reminder of his gospel. An abiding reminder of his gospel. We are renewing our commitment, and by seeing this reminder, we are moved to thought and action. We renew our commitment to him and the service we owe him. And so the, the supper is intended to be highly motivational. Uh, motivational in the right way. Uh, we... Uh, these are reasons enough to observe the supper, uh, but the participation in the meal is also a profession of exclusive loyalty to Christ. It implies submission to his lordship. This is where the supper separates. It's confrontational in some respects. And why is it confrontational? Because it narrows uh, the entry to the table uh, for believers and uh, not for unbelievers and for those who are willing to submit to his lordship, not for those who are living autonomously. And so 
Paul would go on to say that you cannot drink, he warned the Corinthians, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord (coughs) and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Eighth, I told you there were nine things. This is number eight. The Lord's Supper is to be observed in the church as a powerful symbol of our communion with Christ by His Holy Spirit. We see that this meal is communal by by thinking about its first participants. The disciples were there communing with Jesus, and naturally Jesus was there with those disciples in a way that he is not with later disciples. Nonetheless, Jesus is present with us by his Spirit in the Supper, a fact which is central to one of the proof texts preferred or proffered by the authors of the confession. In fact, Paul speaks of Christians as partaking of the cup as those who drink of one spirit. He also refers to the act of drinking the cup as a participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ, and the act of breaking bread as a participation or fellowship with the body of Christ. So a whole lot more is going on while we engage and participate in the Lord's Supper then initially meets the eye. Which leads me to say this. The Lord's Supper really has nothing to do physically with us, but it has everything to do spiritually with us. And here's where people, I think, often miss the point. Spiritual reality is reality, okay? Just because we can't see it or or, or sense it with our five senses doesn't mean it's not real. And so some of the things we do in the supper have to do with spiritual reality. And so Paul goes on and stresses, did I say number nine yet? Number nine? I probably didn't leave you enough room to write all this down. Not all the rest of them have nine points, so you can breathe easy. Ninth, recollection recollection of that first supper and reflection on 1 Corinthians 10 are clearly calculated by God to underscore the closeness of our communion, not only with Christ, but with other Christians. It's a communal act. The disciples communed with Christ at the Last Supper, and they also communed with one another. And while 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, stresses our union with Christ in the Supper, 1 Corinthians 10 17 stresses our union with other believers in the same supper. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This unity with one another in Christ is reinforced in this supper, and is also a unity with one another in the Spirit. Just as in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, so also now with reference to the Lord's Supper, is to be observed as a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. The meal is often called the Last Supper when it was in reality, in many ways, the First Supper. Now, let's move on to the next section. The Lord's Supper is not an offering and it is not a sacrifice. Now, in context, when you're studying the Westminster Confession, you need to remember the context of this confession. And so who who made up the constituency of the context of people that the Westminster Confession of Faith 
is interacting with. Number one would be who? Who are RCs? Roman Catholics. Who are... Uh, Who are the Anabaptists? Right. They're more of the radical wing of the Reformation. Third group would be the Lutherans. And in particular, when writing about the Lord's Supper, the writers and framers of the Confession addressed the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper. Fourthly, who are the Montanists? Or what... Um, Luther later called the enthusiast. Look at it closely and you will know. Who are the enthusiast? Precursors to the modern day charismatic movement. So you see, history is not really changing that much. Because all these groups are still around. Now the Anabaptists would include whose view? Zwingli. And, of course, the Reformed view follows closely in the confession, who? Calvin. Uh, Luther said about Montanus is wrong. I don't even know where that came from. Enthusiast, because I'm a little not at my top. Enthusiast uh, were basically what Luther says was they swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. So he thought they were a little bit wild. What is this? Is this my paper? No, it's not mine. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It does. Good point. Good question. Having once charted out what the Lord's Supper is, the confession now adds a comment about what it is not. So we've looked at what it is, nine things. Now what it is not. It is not in the first place an offering. In this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father. In fact, in the ceremony of the supper, there is not any real sacrifice made at all. Jesus is not given up once more, either for the forgiveness of sins, for the living or the dead, or for any other purposes. Students of history will know Westminster Assembly here is refuting the sacrifice of what? The Mass. Okay? As students of world religion should know, this continues to be an abiding error in the sacramental theory and theology of the Roman Catholic Church. As students of the Bible surely know, Christ, uh, know that Christ can ever be sacrificed again is denied in the most emphatic terms in which New Testament book? Thank you. I just preached that book to you. It's going to be really upset if you didn't get that. First, in contrast to the old covenant regime, Jesus had no intention to offer himself repeatedly nor to suffer repeatedly. It's absurd when you consider what the Hebrews author wrote, especially in chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Second, there's no way of improving or adding to the finished work of Jesus. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Nothing more will ever be needed. 
There's only one Christian sacrifice, and it's seen on the cross, not in the supper. Third, the so-called bloodless sacrifice is supposedly offered in the Roman Catholic Mass can have no merit because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We see that, of course, in Hebrews. Now, the second point made in the second paragraph is that the sacrament is not a commemorative offering, but a commemoration of an offering. It's not a memorial offering. Our dispensational friends who believe that one day the temple will be rebuilt, right? It will occur during the millennium. Every time I write the word millennium, I think of bluebell ice cream. Because, because before the year 2000, in the year 2000, or 1999, they had an ice cream called what? Is my wife? Millennium. Which they, <coughs> our dispensational friends believe there'll be a thousand year Literal, thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Don't get upset if I put Cairo. Okay? That is an acceptable symbol of Christ. If you took notes like I did in the seminary, you got abbreviations for everything because they talk so fast. You're just writing crazy. They believe that the temple will be rebuilt and that what will occur in the temple? Whoa. So when pressed to the mat, what do they say? They're memorial sacrifices. Guess what? That's wrong. Really, really wrong. No, no, no. Well, it does, but it's wrong. According to the book of Hebrews, I don't care who it's for. It's wrong. Absolutely wrong. And insulting, I might add as insulting to Christ as the Roman Catholic view. So I, I guess I'm a little strong on that. But I preached through the book of Hebrews, and I'm, I'm very sure that there's no more commemorate, uh, com commemorative offering. Um, let's go further. Uh, this is why Jesus kept saying that Christians are to observe the supper in his remembrance because it's important, because it will never be repeated. By its very nature, the Lord's Supper is a kind of commemoration which is also a spiritual oblation. Christians engage in the Supper, like Christ, by blessing God, giving thanks. It is a meal which offers spiritual rather than physical benefit, and in doing so, we are giving thanks for Jesus more than we are giving thanks for wheat or wine. We are offering a heartfelt sacrifice of praise to God for Jesus. We are publicly proclaiming the good news, which Jesus has done, which is yet another way of offering praise. Nonetheless, it is a praise that we offer again and again in the supper, not Jesus. The meal remains a commemoration. It is for that reason the Reformation-era theologians protested effectively against what some medieval theologians had earlier uh, protested ineffectively, the popish sacrifice of the Mass. For those reasons, it's not an exaggeration to say 
that the Mass is most abominably injurious to Christ's one and only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect, which is why my personal conviction is I could not participate in a Mass in a Roman Catholic Church. I could not do it. Uh, because I feel like I would be offending my Savior who loved me and gave himself for me. So, and that's something for you to decide one way or the other. I know at times you're there and it's kind of like, well, what do I do? Well, they don't want you to participate, do you, if you're not Catholic, right? <clears throat> so the scriptures tell us that Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. So it's important for us to trust the word of God, which tells us that after Jesus offered himself and completed his work, he sat down at the right hand of God. Let us never drift into a church that ceremonially re-sacrifices Christ when by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let us not look for grace or forgiveness mediated through the mass when we find it directly in Jesus Christ himself. Now, I think that's probably enough on that. Okay, what's the next point? Celebrating the Supper, isn't it? Having defined the essence of the Supper, in paragraphs 1 and 2, the Confession gives directions for its celebration in paragraphs 3 and 4, and the Assembly... Uh, and their teaching is drawn from the fourfold summary of the first supper recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and J Luke, but no John, and in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. In these passages, we find three key features. Number one, Jesus is serving as, as the primary mediator of the new covenant, declared his word of institution, he directed the disciples, telling them what to do and when, and explaining the elements and actions and what they meant. His disciples then passed the Lord's instructions on to other disciples, and although the subject of the supper was important enough for the Apostle Paul to have received instruction on the supper directly from the risen Christ himself. So Paul's discussion of the supper is in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Second, an essential element in celebration of the Lord's Supper is what? What do we always start with? Not just fencing the table, but what? I have a man sitting here who's my designated Lord's Supper prayer. When he's here, I call on Mark to pray. And that is extremely important because Jesus, we see that from his own example. Our prayers are to include a petition for the blessing of the elements, that God would have set apart what is common for a holy purpose. We are to ask that God would take his ordinary bread and the ordinary wine and bless it by his Holy Spirit for extraordinary good. Third, the minister is to take the bread and break the bread and to take the cup and not forgetting to partake of the meal himself he is to give the supper to all those who are communing with Christ and his people at the supper, just as Jesus did the night he was betrayed. Now this concept of private communion. The last line of the third paragraph specifies that the Lord's Supper is not to be received privately, 
One reason why the Westminster Assembly frowned on bringing the bread and wine to persons not present in the worship service was presented in paragraph one, this meal is intended to celebrate communion not only with Christ, but also with fellow Christians. A second related reason why the assembly disapproved of private communion is drawn from the dysfunctional Corinthian church. Not only did this individualistic approach of the Corinthians believers earn an apostolic rebuke, it also seems to have been the settled pattern of the first Christians to gather together to break bread rather than to eat in isolation. And a third reason why the assembly worked to banish the still popular practice of private communion is suggested in paragraph 2 and clarified in the opening line of paragraph 4. The Roman Catholic Church had long taught the saving efficacy of the Mass, and so priests offered private Masses as a kind of lifeline to grace. The Assembly considered the continuation of private communion as a poor example, even in churches where the theology of the Lord's Supper had been corrected. Like the Israelites who were to remember the rebels of the wilderness days, Protestants were to remember the Romanists of the theological wilderness and avoid their way. So the next section has to do with pretended religion. Having forbidden private communion, the assembly proceeded to tackle other ceremonial abuses as well. The most egregious, of course, was the Roman Catholic practice of forbidding people to drink of what? Withholding what? The cup, lest they should accidentally spill the blood of Christ on the floor of the church. One reformer later on said, well, suppose a mouse is running loose in the church and finds some of the bread and eats it. Does he eat Christ? Physically. Uh, needless to say, the Catholics did not like that. <laughs> Suffice it to say that when Jesus gave the cup, he gave it to all his disciples both the coordinated and the clumsy. And the practice of withholding the cup from the laity was a gradual, natural, and tragic development from the idea that the wine miraculously becomes what? Blood. When blessed by the priest. A theory which the assembly confronts in paragraphs 5 and 6. Actually, any additional ceremonies attached to the supper and required either of those who administer it or who receive the supper are an offense to God. For example, bowing down to the elements, lifting up the elements, parading the elements, adoring the elements, storing them up for later religious purposes. All of these activities oppose the true nature of the sacrament and subvert the simple institution of Christ. It is vain worship, empty and useless. The reformers said that this drift and the danger to leaders in the church who teach as the doctrines, the commandments of men. A reader's guide to the sacraments. The fifth paragraph offers a condensed reader's guide to the sacramental sections of the Bible. One of a number of such guides to the Bible readers found in the confession. It is designed to explain the vivid language used to describe the Lord's Supper. The outward elements in the supper uh, or in the sacrament, the bread and the wine, when duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, 
have such a close relation to him crucified that they sometimes are called by the name of the things they signify or represent. We see this kind of language in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. Jesus took the bread after blessing it. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body. He took the cup and he had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. The Westminster Assembly's observation here is that Jesus did not say the bread was like his body and he did not say the wine was like his blood. He effectively and shockingly told his disciples to eat his blood or eat his body and drink his blood. And so the Westminster Assembly, their conclusion here is what Jesus spoke, he spoke truly. That is to say, there's nothing inappropriate or problematic with this kind of talk. It is just acceptable for us to use the language today as it was for Jesus, to use that language himself. He substituted the reality for the symbol instead of the symbol for the reality, and so can we. Evidently, Jesus spoke this way because his sacrament and his sacrifice are closely related and because the symbol chosen by Christ is so perfectly suited to represent himself. Nonetheless, Christ's statement made by a Savior of flesh and blood was true in a sacramental sense only. Let me explain. This is to say, the bread is a true symbol of Christ's flesh. In substance and nature, the bread is bread, and the wine is wine. Now we're going to get into a little philosophy where everybody's eyelids, everybody starts inspecting their eyelids when you talk about this. There's something called accidents and oxidants. Anybody know what this is? Have you ever did this? And the oxidants is what? What appears to the naked eye. This is the outward, this is the inward. Yeah, so what, that's right. You know a little bit about uh, Carl, what's his name? When you say Newman and Phenomena, you're talking about, oh, who's one of the most famous German philosophers? Mark, not, not Karl Barth. He's, he's a theologian. He wrote, no, no, moving on, thank you. Yeah, we will. It's got to be the medication I'm on. All right. Roman Catholics said that while the oxidants doesn't change, that is the outward, bread is bread, wine is wine, to the naked eye, the accidents does change that which is underneath. And it becomes what? Literally, the physical body of Christ and the physical blood of Christ. So when you're ingesting the bread and the cup, you are eating literally, physically, Christ. See why that's so helpful? Huh? Well, it doesn't, but they had to support their view. And that's why you go to philosophy, because very few people know what you're talking about. 
It's a way to slide stuff by. So you don't chew it. And drink it all. Okay. I didn't know that. Learn something new every day. But my, my mind has come back, John. Emmanuel Kant. Emmanuel Kant. I looked at Emmanuel and I knew right away. All right. There you go. Poor Emmanuel died on the other side of the noumena. He was stuck in the phenomena, wasn't he? He didn't think there was any way you could move from the phenomena to the noumena. Noumena is just spiritual. Phenomena is physical stuff you experience with your senses. It's magic. <laughs> Probably setting it apart through prayer. Uh, but let me go because I got I got to go here. All right. The interchange between symbol and substance is amply illustrated in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul moves back and forth between mentioning the body and blood of the Lord, once referring to the crucifixion and supper, and eating the bread and drinking the cup three times referring to the supper. And since the apostle continues to speak of the bread and the cup, this guides our understanding of his references to the body and blood of Jesus. So it's okay to say we are drinking, we are eating his body and drinking his blood, as long as you understand it's in a spiritual sense, which is, we just started talking about the trouble with transubstantiation. So what does transubstantiation mean? When you put trans before a word, what does it mean? To change. And in this case, you're changing what? Substance. Which is... The accidents, not the oxidants. <laughs> okay. Now, the Roman Catholic doctrine, which maintains a change in the substance of the bread into the wine, the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, is simply incorrect. Can anybody tell me maybe a reason why it is totally incorrect theologically to say that that could happen? Human nature, Jesus Christ, is not ubiquitous. Everybody know what the word ubiquitous means? 
Yeah. Yeah. So is Starbucks. Starbucks. It used to be. Uh, ubiquitous is everywhere present. And so the human, glorified human nature of Christ is localized. And so the Roman Catholic view that you're feeding upon Christ's body is radically antithetical to the view of the localized presence of the glorified Christ at the right hand of the Father. We don't know where that is, but we know that it is true. Um, also, uh, the Lutherans held a view called consubstantiation. What is that view? Do any of you know? In, with, and under. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wish Calvin and Luther had had a conversation about this. They were supposed to have had a conversation about this, but it never happened. And, uh, but anyway, back to the real physical presence of Christ. Neither the consecration of a priest or any other special words or actions are capable of changing the substance of the elements of the Lord's Supper. The idea of transubstantiation or any similar theory is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but even common sense and reason, without doubt. It's contrary to the Scripture. After all, the resurrected Jesus explained to his disciples, he has normal flesh and blood, though glorified, as Peter told the men of Israel in Solomon's portico. Heaven has received Jesus and will keep him until all things are restored at that last day. We celebrate the supper in remembrance of Jesus, but remembering is certainly an odd thing to do if Jesus is actually present with us in his body. First on the table, then in our mouths. And so, transubstantiation and the family of associated theories are contrary to common sense. Um, that's all I want to say on that. What time is it? Okay, I got five minutes. Yeah. Quickly. Yeah, it was wrong when I said it when I was a Baptist, I guarantee you. <laughs> but you're right, it is. There, there is no altar. Yeah, the altar's done. All right, well, it sounds spiritual. It just sounds... Yeah. Okay, good. Spiritual presence of Christ in the supper. Um, the remedy to the doctrine of a real physical presence of Christ is not the doctrine of real absence but a doctrine of the spiritual presence. And paragraph 7 represents the old Calvinistic doctrine of the spiritual presence of Christ in the supper. When we are properly receiving the supper in an examination of ourselves, we are inwardly partaking of Christ while outwardly partaking of the visible elements. The Apostle Paul calls this participation or fellowship in the blood and body of Christ a concept which usefully challenges conventional assumptions and evangelicalism that the Lord's Supper is merely a memorial moment to remember Jesus. The Lord's Supper is far more than that. I guess that's why we only had it four times a year. Maybe they thought that was enough to remember Jesus. But this participation in Christ in the Supper is by faith and it's spiritual. 
That is to say, when we come to the supper trusting afresh in Christ and the triumph of his cross, we find Christ present by his Holy Spirit in the supper. We are nourished by him. And although receiving and feeding is not carnal or corporal, it is nonetheless real and actual. To state it in a different way, and even more emphatically, the body and blood of Jesus is not during the supper corporally or carnally in, with, and under the bread and wine of Christ. Christ is not present in the body in the flesh. No Catholic, Lutheran, high Anglican formula of real presence and the sense of physical presence is biblical. Nor are these doctrines necessary. Spiritual does not mean artificial. Spiritual realities are true realities. And finally, eating and drinking damnation. Now, this is worthy of an entire class. And I got 30 seconds. So, the Westminster Assembly said this. Ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in the sacrament, but not the things signified thereby. They get food and drink. They do not get the Savior or any benefits from him. Nevertheless, not only is there no positive benefit, but there's actual harm. The scripture states clearly, by unworthy participation in the supper, people become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That is to say, they drink to their own damnation. Ignorant and ungodly people are unfit to enjoy communion with the Lord, and so they are unworthy of the Lord's table. The problem is not simply that unbelievers should not hide in the ranks of believers. It's far deeper than that. The meal speaks of Christian partnership and fellowship, and as Paul asked in 2 Corinthians, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, Christ with Belial, or God with idolatry? Partaking of these holy mysteries while remaining an unbeliever is not merely a mistake. It's a great sin against Christ. And we should always, in one sense, fence the table before serving. Uh, The unpardonable sin is resisting the Holy Spirit. Right, 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 right. But I say that in short, Neil. I could give you a much longer answer. I just don't have time. But if you, if you. Blaspheme the Holy Spirit or resist his workings, how can you be a Christian? The only way I can be a Christian or you can be a Christian is through regeneration. Who does that? Who applies redemption? Yeah. It's not just saying stuff. It's it's far more than saying stuff. Yeah. It's a memorial. Yeah. But they do not see it as having any reference to the future, the wedding supper of the Lamb. They do not see it as having any reference to the present of feeding upon Christ, being nourished by Him, strengthened. Yeah, it's just basically look at the cross, which is not a bad thing. You know, i got too many relatives to say it's a bad thing. They'll come get me. No, let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time together looking at the sacrament. 
we do pray that you would help us be gracious about it, but at the same time be firm about it, uh, to stand for the truth, yet graciously, recognizing we only know what we know by your mercy. And we pray that we would, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, truly understand and enter into and enjoy the benefits of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.